Would you turn to Psalm 110 in the scriptures? Much shorter scripture reading than this morning. Only seven verses, Psalm 110, in connection with Lord's Day 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism, about Christ sitting at the right hand of God. Psalm 110, the Psalm of David, and that's important. Psalm of David, it's testified to in the New Testament. Jesus reminds us that David spoke these words. We read two lords in verse 1. The first lord is in all capitals, meaning Jehovah, Yahweh, the covenant lord. And then the second lord is in lowercase, meaning master. So Jehovah said to my master, The Lord said to my lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Then if you look in the Forms and Prayers book to the Heidelberg Catechism, I'd like to consider the first two questions and answers of Lord's Day 19 this evening and reserve the third one for later. But page 220 in the Forms and Prayers book, page 220, and question 50 asks, why then these next words in the Apostles' Creed, the words, and sits at the right hand of God. Remember the former words were that he ascended into heaven, and now these words, he sits at the right hand of God. Well, answer, because Christ ascended to heaven, there to show that he is head of his church, the one for whom the Father governs all things. And then, how does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and preserves us from all our enemies. Let's balance more before our God. Father in heaven, would you lift our hearts and minds to heaven tonight and give to us a clear vision of the reign of our Lord Jesus that we might be encouraged and strengthened. We thank you that your word is powerful to teach us truth. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us and that we would be strengthened by it, that the reign of Christ would grow in our hearts even tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I can probably safely say that not a single one of us, not a single one of us has taken as much comfort in this article of the Apostles' Creed in this past week as we could have. Say that not as a rebuke, but as an encouragement that, that this reality, that Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, is a treasure trove that can be mined for, for, by us every day in, in deeper and deeper ways. And yet to, to get that, 
comfort we really need, even tonight as we, as we seek to ponder this truth and to, to hear it preached and to receive it, we need really what Stephen needs. We need a divine miracle, don't we? We, we? we need, like Stephen, as he was being killed, being stoned to death, the heavens parted, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We, we can't penetrate and see the reign of Christ except by a glorious working of the Holy Spirit. We live in a world that's utterly blind, right, to the, to the reign of Christ. I mean, if you were to bring up on the evening news the most supreme reality of every news story, the fact that Jesus is on the throne reigning and controlling everything, you'd, you'd be laughed at, you'd be scoffed at. It's as if it doesn't even exist. And yet tonight we're confessing that this is the reality, the supreme reality of our lives, of the church, and of the world we live in, that Jesus Christ reigns over everything from God's right hand. Let's look at that tonight. Let's look at the reality of Christ's reign and then think about the riches of Christ's reign. So last time we were talking about the ascension of Christ, that Christ, 40 days after he arose from the dead, he went up into heaven. That's the ascension. And now tonight we're talking about what's called the session of Christ, the sitting at God's right hand. And they go together, of course. He ascends into heaven to be seated and to reign. And and this this sitting at, at God's right hand, this being seated, is both a work of Christ and a work of the Father. Christ goes up into heaven by his own might, his own victory. He has triumphed over his enemies at the cross, right? He is... He has broken the principalities and powers by his death on the, on the cross. He's triumphed over the earth, over enemies, over hostile demons. And he, like the king returning from battle, has the, the enemies at his feet, has the captives in tow. He is the mighty victor and he ascends into heaven. It's a picture in Ephesians 4 we'll come back to. But it's also an act of God the Father, because in his ascension, the Father was raising Christ up and seating him. It was the Father's bestowal on a son who has perfectly done the will of God. And so God is rewarding him, right? Think of Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians 2, that, that the Son of God humbles himself, becoming a servant, even humbles himself to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given them the name above every name. Let the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that he's Lord. So the cross leads to the resurrection, the resurrection to the ascension, the ascension to the session or the being seated on the throne at God's right hand. And none of this takes Jesus by surprise or some accident, right? Throughout his earthly ministry, Christ at points testified to the fact that he would be on the throne. And you think of that key moment when the high priest said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. And Jesus said, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then for saying that, they killed him. High priest tore his clothes. He's spoken blasphemy. What further do we need? What further witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They say he's deserving of death. And so they begin to spit in his face and beat him, strike him. He's killed for proclaiming that he will sit at God's right hand. 
But the way he gets to God's right hand is by being killed, by giving his life, sacrifice for our sins. Now David had prophesied this centuries before in Psalm 110. Jehovah said to my master, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is a key psalm, one of the most quoted psalms in, in the Bible. Place at God's right hand is a place of honor and authority, right? It's, um, it's the place by which the, the king rules through the man at his right hand, brings forth, who executes the king's will. Christ, on the base of his perfect obedience, has been exalted to the highest sovereignty and majesty and honor and glory. Now, we might be tempted to think, what's the big deal here? I mean, he is the son of God. He created the world. He's always been the king. Why is this so spectacular? And the answer is because that when Christ returns to heaven's glory, it's not just as the son of God, but it's as the God-man, the Christ, as our representative, as the one who died our death. We have a man upon the throne. You know, maybe we say sometimes if we, if we like how the election turned out, we've got our man in the White House. Well, we've got our man at the throne of the universe, our brother clothed in our flesh, who, who, who came for us and identified with us and owns us as his people. He's crowned with glory and honor. There is a man upon the throne in heaven, the God-man Jesus, who triumphed at the cross. And his reign right now is a present reality. It's a present reality, though you can see it only by faith. Now, from earth's perspective, Christ going up into heaven looked like this, Acts 1. Now, when he had spoken these words, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. But from heaven's perspective, it went like this, Revelation 12, verse 5. She bore a male child, a male child, who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, Revelation makes clear this was a climactic moment in the history of our redemption. Because then Revelation 12, 9 tells us, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. When Christ comes into heaven, Satan's cast out. The accuser, his power is broken. And so Christ now reigns on the throne above. This is now his reign. This is now his kingdom. I mentioned dispensationalism this morning uh, for a moment, but you know, there's many in terms of dispensationalism who believe that we're waiting for the kingdom of Jesus. We're waiting for Christ to descend at Jerusalem and to begin his millennial reign for a thousand years. But we believe that Christ is in his reign. It is the hour of his kingdom. This is the millennium. He is reigning from heaven. He's reigning from heaven right now. He's seated upon the throne. As Hebrews 1 puts it, when he, when he himself had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Psalm 110, says that this sitting at God's right hand is a resting posture, a ruling posture, and a remaining posture. You think about those for a minute. It's a resting posture because he's completed his work. 
Busy mom labors all day, maybe from the moment she gets up, caring for kids and cooking meals or changing diapers and chasing here and there and playing outside, running to the grocery store. Maybe she gets them all tucked in bed at night and finally she sits down. She sits down and it's finally a moment, not just of rest, but of completion. She's done the day's tasks. Well, Christ, according to Hebrews 1, sits down after he had purged our sins. He has accomplished redemption. He's paid the full price. And he does what no priest had done. He sits down in the temple. But it's also a posture of ruling. It's from that seated place that he is said to rule. Sitting at God's right hand is is perhaps a, a metaphorical, a figurative expression of that reign. Because Christ is also said to be at God's right hand, to stand at God's right hand. He's also said to walk among the lampstands. It's not like he's bound to some chair, but it's a it's a, a proclamation of his rule. He is king. He reigns right now. And then it's a remaining posture. God has set his king upon his holy hill, and no one is going to topple his reign or bring him down. So we've come into a new situation, a dramatically new situation, which Satan's power is shattered. Satan's power to deceive the nations is broken. The devil is chained. And though he's still allowed some room to do his evil works, he's on a leash. Christ is in full control of heaven and of earth, of all men, of all angels, of all demons, of all planets, of all stars. Christ is king over all. Our Christ, one who loves us, the one who died for us, he reigns. And now he sends out ambassadors across the globe to announce his reign to all the nations And not merely now to invite people, you know, would you like to come? I invite you to come. But to summon sinners to bow down in repentance and acknowledge his rule. He's a great king. Hebrews 2 says we don't yet see all things made subject to man. We were made to rule. And that day of our rule hasn't, clearly hasn't come yet. Even animals sometimes bite us. But... We see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That's what the writer of Hebrews can say. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. The world can't see that. Maybe your neighbors or coworkers think you're crazy, but you see it. Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And the New Testament is filled with this proclamation. Filled with this proclamation. I mean, the very first... Christian sermon to be preached, if you want to call it that. The the post-Pentecost sermon, Acts chapter 2. What does Peter preach? He says, this Jesus, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And then he said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, he has made him both Lord and Christ. He's made him the Lord, the king over all. Do we think about that enough? One writer says it like this. He says, we speak frequently about Jesus coming down to serve as a slave. But we rejoice too little in his going up to be our king and to set us free. 
Churches make too much of Christmas and too little of the ascension. In that respect, they're out of step with the New Testament. It's worth pondering, isn't it? Do you realize that there's many people who have never missed a Christmas or Easter worship service who don't even know what the word ascension means? Don't know even what Ascension Day is? How strange it is. The King, Christ, has entered the gates of glory. He has taken the throne. I mean, can you imagine when King Charles was, was enthroned, installed, if they just sort of passed it by? Think of all the pomp and ceremony. This was a spectacular event over many days. Talking about the crucified one who came once in history to die our death. Now once in history going up to the throne and being seated at God's right hand. This is a spectacular event. This changes history forever. And yet sometimes we would rather not think about it. When we don't think about it, when we don't think about it, it has a great effect on our lives. We're not nearly as confident or bold as we ought to be. When we don't think about it, our lips are filled with all of our frustrations about politics and culture and this and that. When we don't think about it, we think all things are a swirl and all the power brokers of the world are, are ruining our lives. But what if we could see with Stephen Christ at God's right hand? It's difficult, isn't it, to see sometimes when the enemies seem to have so much power. But Psalm 110 tells us that the Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I'm going to bring them to subjection, God says to his son. I'm going to bring your enemies beneath your feet. You're going to put your foot upon their neck. And he's going to do this easily, as Matthew Henry says. He will do this Easily, as we easily put a footstool in its proper place. But God does this. In the right way and at the right time. The reason right now that that people are still blaspheming Christ and ignoring his reign and, and doing wicked things on earth is not because Christ has no power. It's because God will put the enemies beneath Christ's feet in the way and at the time that will bring Christ the most honor and glory. He will put the enemies beneath Christ's feet in the way and at the time that will bring Christ the most glory. And see, we're often thinking that somehow Jesus is weak. That's why these bad things go on, and that's not the case. All these enemies are are less than Christ. He has all authority in heaven on earth, as he told us. All the enemies of this world, even Satan and all his hostile forces, do not in the slightest way disturb the rule of Christ Jesus. There's not one single desire, not one tiny piece of God's plan that right now is being frustrated and Christ can't accomplish it because the powers are too great in the world of darkness. No. He's king. He's sovereign. God, the Father, has bestowed upon him all authority and power. And the fact that he sits on the throne right now is the sure pledge that all his enemies will be made 
defeated beneath his feet. None of his enemies will triumph over him. In fact, in Psalm 2, right? Kind of a partner psalm to Psalm 110. We read that, that God laughs, right? At the wicked men who raise their fist and will, 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 will topple God's anointed. God says, I've installed my king on my holy hill. And you go to war with him? You're going to unseat the one I seated? It makes God laugh. What has taken place here at the ascension and being seated at God's right hand is stage two of Christ's work. He's entered into stage two. Stage one was his work of atonement, his work of redemption on earth, his work of dying for our sins. But now on the throne, he enters stage two. And he's still busy upon the earth. Sometimes, you know, we speak of, uh, of Christ's earthly ministry. As if he's not busy on earth today. Well, he's very busy on earth today, but he's busy now in a different way. He's busy on the basis of his completed work. Remember in the book of Acts, uh, Luke, in the book of Acts, excuse me, yeah, the book of Acts, Luke begins and he says, In my former book, O Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach till the day he was taken up. So he's saying in my, or, my earlier book, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach till he was taken up. And so now Luke is implying in the book of Acts, now I'm going to tell you all that Jesus continues to do from heaven, having been taken up and seated on the throne. Christ rules. And he rules to the very end. He rules with power. He rules till all his enemies are made his footstool, or in the language of 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So there's a goal, there's a terminus to the reign of Jesus. It's not just going to go on like this forever. There's a plan being worked out. There is a, a sovereign plan Christ is executing in which every enemy is being put down until that last enemy death. Put beneath until that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that day of judgment will come. So Christ rules over all his enemies, but in a special way, he rules as his church. We confess in the Catechism that Christ ascended into heaven there to show that he is the head of his church, the one through whom the Father governs all things. Oftentimes in Scripture, when it talks about Christ as the king of his church, it doesn't use the word king, it uses the word head. He's the head of his church. The one on the throne is our Lord. And he stands in a much different relationship to his church than he does to the world. We, we in theology, we sometimes distinguish between the, the reign of Christ's power and the reign of his grace. He reigns by power and might over all of the world, even over his enemies. But he reigns by grace in his church, by his spirit, by his word, in the hearts and lives of his people. The reign of grace. His enemies are forced, they're coerced, they're compelled to do his will. But his people are bent in love and inclined to do his will. Christ stands in intimate relationship to his people. Never has a king loved his people more deeply or cared for them more faithfully or protected them more jealously or led them more wisely or borne with them more patiently. If a glorious king, if a glorious king, 
By the way, our great hope is not a democracy. Glorious hope is a monarchy. A king who loves us and rules wisely. Our Lord Jesus. In fact, Psalm 110 and verse 3 says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. When this king enlists soldiers and doesn't have recruitment officers going out and begging and bargaining, bribing people to become part of his army, when this king says it's time to go to war, the young men come flooding in, volunteers, willing servants that have seen the beauty of their Lord and want to serve him. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be one who serves the Lord, not because we're coerced or forced, but because our hearts are changed. And we love this Lord Jesus. And we'd follow him anywhere. And how does the Lord do this? Well, verse 2, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. The rod of his strength is the everlasting gospel. And that gospel is at work in the world. Subduing hearts, strengthening his people, and bringing Christ a volunteer army. Soldiers who love Jesus and who will live for him. This is going on right now. Right now. This is, this is the story of the history of the world. That Christ reigns to put down all his enemies and Christ reigns to gather all of his people by the word of his power. Well, tonight, then, what are the riches of this reign of Jesus? If this reign is a present reality, what are the riches for us? Well, Christ, since he's king, he has... All of heaven's resources, all of heaven's riches at his disposal to give to his people. Kings have sent armies into battle before and they have little to give them. They can't resupply them. They don't have any more resources. But this is never an issue for Jesus. He owns heaven. In the Old Testament, God gave his people daily manna, daily guidance by his glory cloud. And now with Christ in heaven, we don't receive anything less. He's feeding us and caring for us. He's, he's making the church thrive and prosper. He's, he's leading us to full maturity in him. And he's gifting us for service. Here's that word, the words of Ephesians 4. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And again, that's the picture of a king coming back from battle. He's won the battle. He has gathered all the plunder. He's got some captives being towed behind his chariot. And, and now there's this great victory parade as the king and his army are marching through the town and the people are cheering. And then the king divides the spoils up with his soldiers and with his citizens. And that's the picture that Christ ascending has, has won the victory upon earth. He's overcome all of his enemies. And now he's dividing the plunder with us as people. Primarily the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit who gives us the grace to serve our Lord. Gives to us new hearts. He gives to us regeneration. He gives to us sanctification. Gives to us fellowship with himself. He gives to us union as a people together in Christ. And he gives to us spiritual gifts to serve his cause. From heaven. Every gift, every power, every ministry, it all comes from Jesus. There's no Christian service that is 
that is worked up from below here. But everything is a bestowal, the spirit in God's people equipping them to serve. Every grace, every spiritual gift, as Christ is working his church, bringing it to maturity. In Ephesians 4, it goes on to say then that he gave some to be apostles, and some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And these are gifts of Christ. We recognize the gifts of office Offices and office bearers are part of the gift that Christ gives to his church on earth to teach his people, to rule his people, to care for the needs of his people. But he also gives gifts to all of his people. Ephesians 4, 7, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Now to each one, to each one of us, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So if Christ is your king, then you cannot say, I have nothing to give to Christ's people. I am a useless servant. Can't say that. If Christ is your king, then he's poured out his spirit upon you and he's gifted you for service in the church of Jesus Christ. Now we can make ourselves useless as servants, right? When we refuse to serve or when we live in sin. But we're not by definition useless if we belong to Jesus. We are useful. And we're called to respond. He's a great king. How could you not want to serve him, right? This is encouragement to us in the body of Jesus. It would be a sad thing, wouldn't it, to be a member of Christ's church and to, to, to be one of those who professes this faith, that Christ is seated at God's right hand, and then to be one who, who never looks for places in the church of Christ to serve. What would that say about your king let's say he's stingy king he hasn't given me anything no christ has gifted his people he pours out gifts upon us that we might give to others but then we confess tonight the second benefit in the catechism not just that through his holy spirit he pours out gifts from heaven upon his members but secondly By his power, he defends us and preserves us from all our enemies. From all our enemies. This is something we should take to heart tonight, right? Because we often feel like like we're being pushed around, don't we? Like things threaten to swirl out of control. Like the politicians have all the authority in the world or... Or the international corporations, they're running the show. Or the public school system, whatever's behind it, is indoctrinating children. Or whatever it might be. The scientists, the genetic engineers. Tonight, we're confessing that Christ is defending and preserving his people to the very end. Our lives and our souls are not up for grabs. The the future of the church is not a maybe and an if and we'll see. Christ has said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, that means the, remember the gates of a city in, in the Old Testament, New Testament too, the gates of a city were, were the place where rulers gathered, represents authority and power. And Christ says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that he's building. So we see that. We read the book of Acts and 
Christ can set apostles free from prison, right? He can open prison gates. Or he can have his apostles die as martyrs. He can do whatever he pleases. But, but his operation, his purpose, the coming of his kingdom, the, the progress of his church is never in doubt. Christ reigns. He reigns for the good of his church. And so, to glorify our Lord Jesus, we should pray for a confident obedience. Not one where we wring our hands, shake our heads as if everything's out of control. But a confident obedience in which you look to heaven and say, praise be to you, Christ. We do grieve sin. We do grieve wickedness. We do hate to see you blasphemed on earth. But we know that you're in control of everything. You reign over President Biden, Vice President Harris. You reign over the U.S. Senate and the U.S. Congress. You reign over the Supreme Court. You reign over every dictator in this world. You reign over Satan. You have this world in your hands. And in a far greater way, you have this church in the palm of your hand. You care for your people. And we trust in you that all of history is being moved forward and directed to its God-appointed goal by no one less than the Father's own beloved Son, who is our Lord and Savior. And so tonight, we're confessing everything's on track. What's the state of the union? What's the state of the world? Everything is on track. Everything. You believe that? That Christ rules at the Father's right hand. Everything is on track. May God give us the grace to see the heavens parted and to see Christ seated at God's right hand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you, asking and pleading for eyes, the eyes of faith, to see the reality. We acknowledge, O Lord, we've often denied our own confession. What we've said in church on Sunday nights has often been denied by our attitudes and our complaints on Monday morning. Pray, Lord, tonight that you'd help us, that we'd be able to know both how to grieve over sin and to sorrow over the lawlessness, but never to doubt and never to betray our Lord by suggesting that things are outside of his control. We give praise to our Lord Jesus for his reign. We thank you for his love for us that he defends us with all power. We thank you for his victory upon which his throne rests, for his death on the cross. We thank you for his love, for his people, for the gifts he's poured out. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings we do enjoy in the congregation of Christ. And even, Lord, where we see enemies attacking, or even when we see apostasy arise in the church and false teachers, may we never doubt that our Lord Jesus reigns. Give us a firm faith, a confidence, an obedience, that he may be magnified in the hearts of us as people. In Jesus' name, we do pray this. Amen. Let's sing Psalm 110.